This is the podcast by the Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by the Straits Times, where we analyze the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan, and I cover science and environment for the Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David, and I'm the climate change editor at the Straits Times. It is the 14th of October. COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, will take place in Glasgow over the first two weeks of November. The meeting aims to secure more ambitious pledges from countries to reduce their planet warming emissions and hammer out details on climate finance and other mechanisms that can help put the 2015 Paris Agreement into action. But what's in it for Singapore and the broader Southeast Asia region? We hear from Melissa Lowe, a research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Energy Studies Institute and a long-time climate policy observer. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you, David and Audrey, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mel, in a previous episode, we heard from Dr. Salim Al-Haq on a number of key issues that need to be hammered out at this year's COP. Uh, this includes things like securing more ambitious pledges from countries, climate finance, and the loss and damage mechanism for more vulnerable nations. But tell us, what do these issues mean for Southeast Asia? Thanks for the question, Audrey. COP26 is a significant conference for two reasons. First, uh, it follows the contribution of the most recently report, released report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which confirms global warming is changing our climate with dire consequences. And the window to curb climate change as well as build resilient societies is closing rapidly. Based on UN calculations that was done only recently in September, the latest climate pledges submitted by 164 countries, if all of them were implemented, it will still cause greenhouse gas emissions in 2030 to be 16.3% above 2010 levels. So this is an overshoot. If we want to stay within 1.5 degrees, net GHG emissions will actually have to decline by 45% below 2010 levels by 2030. And it has to reach net zero by 2050. So this upcoming COP is really important. Second, we are hoping that the remaining pieces of the Paris rulebook can be finalized in Glasgow so that countries can buckle down and concentrate on implementation of the Paris Agreement. So given that Southeast Asia is already feeling the effects of climate change, the region is eager to conclude negotiations and move forward. Southeast Asian countries have actually not slacked over these last two years as the COP was delayed, and the last COP was held in 2019 in Madrid. Uh, so the countries in this region have actually used this time to upgrade their national policies, as well as measurement, reporting and verification process. Many have also strengthened their climate pledges under the Paris Agreement. Several of them have come forward uh, with long-term national strategies and policies, such as aims to become net zero by between 2050 and 2070. Of course, there's always room for improvement, but we should also recognize that there's been tremendous progress that the Southeast Asian region has made, and we must continue to build and maintain capacity. So in terms of climate finance, developing countries have long called for the wealthier nations to do more. Uh, for Southeast Asia, what does this mean? So perhaps uh, flash out for us what sort of help this region needs uh, to deal with climate change. And by needs, I mean uh, things like cash or green technology. Thanks, David. First, I should say that because of how diverse we are in Southeast Asia, um, the countries are divided on this matter of finance. I looked at the most recent climate pledges of each country, 
and found that while some countries put forward conditional mitigation targets that require international support, meaning finance, technology, and capacity building, others do not. But let me share a little more about what is expected to be deliberated in Glasgow. There will be negotiations on how to boost climate finance for developing countries from 2025 onwards. It was agreed at previous COPs that developed countries should mobilize US $100 billion annually by 2020 to support developing countries. Countries meeting in Glasgow will be discussing how to increase this amount from 2025 onwards. The amount of climate finance need not be agreed in Glasgow itself, but there is an expectation that COP26, uh, in terms of the outcome, uh, should include further detail on how this new finance target deliberations would be done and how to set the goal before 2025. Now, in terms of an overall quantum, there's been one initial proposal of US $750 billion um, made up of public and private subcomponents at the July ministerial that was, was held earlier this year. Uh, some ministers had uh, supported this, whereas others expressed concern over putting numbers on the table before the deliberations are even commenced in Glasgow. So, Mel, I mean, you, on, on this note on climate finance, I mean, are there any figures that show you know, what countries in our region have been receiving uh, in terms of international support? Sure. To give you a sense of the scale of support received, Indonesia had reported its international support received in 2015 to 2016 as somewhere around the order of USD $1,000 million in the form of loans and grants through bilateral and multilateral channels. So this includes uh, specific countries having given uh, Indonesia money directly uh, or through the Global Environment Facility. Uh, in another example, Vietnam had reported as well in its NDC or Nationally Determined Contributions that the amount of grants that it has received is around US $350 million. Uh, and this figure uh, does not include foreign direct investment projects. So it's, it's quite a, a lot of money that they're requesting for. Coming back to countries that have asked for international support, they are framed like this in the NDCs. Cambodia, who is a, uh, which is a least developed countries, they have asked for um, more support to develop their MRV system or measurement reporting and verification system and more support in terms of finance, capacity building and technology to implement the NDCs. Uh, Lao PDR is also a, a least developed countries, and their first NDC that they submitted under the Paris Agreement highlighted that they need around US $12 million annually for disaster emergency response plans. Interestingly, Malaysia that submitted its updated NDC in July of this year had spoken of how successful implementation of adaptation activities will likely increase investments and funds from sources like the private sector. The way I see it, uh, this might point to countries in this region exploring cross-sectoral climate finance. Uh, and so they're not only looking at international support. So what about in terms of loss and damage, such as compensating countries for irreversible loss of life and damage to infrastructure due to climate change? This seems to be uh, a major discussion topic, has been for some time, and it's gaining momentum as climate impacts grow. So two questions here. What is Singapore's stance on this matter? And which countries in the region are most affected by loss and damage? Thanks, David. I'll answer the second question first, uh, which is which countries in this region are most affected by loss and damage. Uh, as we know, ASEAN is highly vulnerable to climate change impacts. And the two countries that experience the most uh, in terms of climate impacts are Vietnam and the Philippines. And this is due largely to the exposure to flooding, typhoons and so on. Uh, but overall, the region is highly vulnerable to sea level rise and coastal inundation. And large populations and economic assets also 
uh, are found in coastal areas. And so when I looked at the ASEAN NDCs, uh, loss and damage is mentioned uh, in a number of them. Vietnam specifically has identified economic losses uh, due to climate change as well as non-economic losses. This include adverse impacts on people's health, for example, uh, and when you have to relocate communities and economic zones. They also mention uh, the issue of land erosion and loss of cultural heritage, local knowledge, biodiversity and ecosystems. But as you can imagine, some of these are quite difficult to quantify. So numbers are not provided uh, by Vietnam in this case. Uh, the Philippines, which I mentioned, is one of the other two um, countries that are extremely vulnerable to climate change impacts. Um, it has mentioned in its NDC that uh, it has experienced loss and damage from extreme weather events, and this is increasing for them at an unacceptable rate. Um, they estimated that super typhoon Haiyan uh, back in 2013 resulted in a loss of somewhere around 4% of their GDP. So um, in terms of Singapore, there is no publicly available information on whether loss and damage applies to us, but Singapore does play a role when it comes to loss and damage. So back in 2018, when we were the chair of ASEAN, uh, we had announced together with other countries, the establishment of uh, the Southeast Asian Disaster Risk Insurance Facility or CDRIF for short. So this is a regional platform and an ASEAN plus three initiative in partnership with the World Bank. And what it aims to do is to build the region's financial resistance or resilience against climate shocks and disasters. Currently, the membership includes uh, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Myanmar, Philippines, Singapore, and Japan. And I, I believe the countries are actively seeking more membership across the region. In one of our previous podcasts, we spoke with another climate policy expert, Dr. Salim Mohak, who also mentioned loss and damage. But I was wondering whether you can expound a bit more on, you know, under the Paris Agreement, are there any code? Mm -hmm. uh, is this coded into the Paris Agreement in any way? Yes, thanks, Audrey, for the question. So I, I listened to the last episode and Dr. Salimul Haq indeed did explain loss and damage, but he didn't expand on some of the mechanisms. So Article 8 of the Paris Agreement does address loss and damage, and it's also being implemented through something called the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage, or the WIM. Uh, so the Executive Committee of the WIM has the function of enhancing knowledge and understanding comprehensive risk management approaches to address loss and damage. And its role is also to help strengthen dialogue and coordination among stakeholders. As I mentioned earlier, it's very difficult to quantify some of the non-economic losses of loss and damage uh, for certain countries or for all countries for that matter. And so the WIM is, is trying to help with that. Um, there's been also very few academic studies in the area of loss of social capital, biodiversity and loss of ecosystems. So I believe more technical cooperation and funding should be put towards this to help countries conduct more comprehensive loss and damage assessments. And this will help us better understand their needs and how to address them. Now, if you like what you're hearing so far, do subscribe to our series Green Pulse on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating. So Mel, I mean, you mentioned the IPCC report earlier and on top of that, we've also seen extreme weather events playing out across the world uh, this year especially. And that has, of course, accelerated a lot of countries' plans to decarbonize or, and that certainly put more attention into it. But other than, you know, these headline statements and these targets of net zero and so on, what other aspects of their implementation uh, must also be considered when we are looking at reducing our carbon emissions? For me, another key issue is how transparent countries are in reporting their progress to achieve their targets. 
And transparency is important because it provides a way to track progress of each country's implementation and achievement of their targets that they set out to, to achieve. Oh, but before we go into that a bit more, maybe you can just explain to us what exactly does transparency mean in the context of uh, climate change negotiations? Okay, so when countries participate in transparency reporting, which means that uh, every four years they submit a national communication and every two years uh, they submit a biennial report or biennial update report, depending on whether you are a developed or developing country, this helps to build capacity within uh, the government to collect and handle emissions data In doing so, they also have to organize and coordinate across the whole of government to produce a transparency report in a timely manner. For example, if they don't submit it on time, it will be noted in their report, right, that the UNFCCC produces. Um, A lack of capacity for transparency reporting is also at times used as a bargaining tool for more support. I'm pleased to see that Southeast Asian countries have been generally open to participating in transparency reporting and have actually produced several reports over the last few years. And I think that this will put most ASEAN countries in a good position to transition from the current MRV arrangements to the Enhanced Transparency Framework under the Paris Agreement starting 2024. So just to conclude, how high uh, do you think are the stakes for Southeast Asia at this coming COP in Glasgow? Uh, And especially after all the reports we're hearing from climate scientists about the risks from increasingly severe climate impacts. Thanks, David. The the stakes are indeed very high and countries in Glasgow must do do their best and take bold and immediate action to make urgent transformation away from our high emissions pathway towards a low carbon and resilient future. Uh, For the most vulnerable of Southeast Asia, their future depends on four key priorities that have to be addressed in Glasgow. The first is for countries to fulfill their existing commitments. So at COP26, countries that have pledged to mobilize uh, greater climate finance to support the needs of developing nations must fulfill that commitment. And this is absolutely crucial if we are to maintain and build trust among countries. Um, The second is to wrap up any outstanding Paris rulebook negotiations. And uh, this includes resolving the very complicated issues around Article 6 rules uh, so as to finally enable market and non-market tools to launch operations. Uh, Governments must also ensure that transparency and in particular the enhanced transparency framework under the Paris Agreement is technically ready to operate and this helps to advance work in related areas such as adaptation and loss and damage. And we talked about this earlier as well. Um, We need to have more ambition. Any new NDCs uh, following Glasgow must be aligned with the science. Uh, There's long-term strategies that can ensure climate neutrality by 2050. Um, These also need to be put on the table. And finally, um, we have to leave no voices unheard. I think the pandemic has has really um, caused some uncertainty about whether people will be participating in Glasgow COP26. Uh, But we have to make sure that uh, all voices are heard. We must rise above and acknowledge the role, power and influence of everyone, right? Including cities, regions, businesses, investors, the media, as well as education institutions from all over the world, and especially the most vulnerable because uh, we cannot do uh, it alone. We have to make sure that we collectively address climate change and we have to do so by mobilizing action immediately. Thanks so much, Mel, for explaining all these key and rather technical issues to us ahead of the Climate Change Conference. Thanks, Mel. Thank you. Tune in for our next episode with Mel as we go into detail about another key issue of interest for Singapore and ASEAN at the upcoming Climate Talks, Carbon Markets. Well, that's a wrap for Greenhouse and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. 
for more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.